Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from the Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday's sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, A Living Faith, discussing the book of James. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. Good morning. This is, uh, this is microphone number three, by the way, if you were with us last week, and I was holding a handheld microphone. This is our third one of these microphones, and, and I can assure you, if this one does not work, it will be the last. So it's good to be with you this morning for our third week in our series, A Living Faith, where we're exploring the book of James together. Uh, this morning, we're beginning chapter two and going through the 13th verse. I'll give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles this morning. That's James chapter two. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be on the screen behind me this morning. And if you don't have a Bible at all, or at least one that you can understand, please talk to me afterwards, and I would love to make sure you leave with one. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking, breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. So there are three major themes that run through the book of James that were introduced in chapter one. We're going to talk about the first one today and next week as well, it looks like, and that is the theme of riches and poverty. Riches and poverty, the dynamics of people from different classes being part of Christ's body together and living life closely together, regularly breaking bread with one another. And this is a fascinating dynamic that happens in the church, and it's unlike anything we see elsewhere in society. You don't have this sort of dynamic in, in any other setting that I can think of. If you have a country club membership, for example, you're not dealing with rich and poor, right? That sort of complicated social dynamic. It, it's just the well-to-do that have country club memberships. 
I do not have one. If you work at a factory or a restaurant or someplace like that, you don't have that dynamic in the workplace. You all have the same job, making basically the same amount of money. Sure, your manager might make a little more than you, but not enough to like put you in totally different classes, right? And yes, like the owner of that business might be wealthy, but they probably don't rub shoulders with you on a, on a daily basis if they are. You don't have this dynamic at a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen. While if you're a person being served by one of those places, you might be down on your luck financially, and the person who volunteered to help out at that place might have some means. You're not really peers in that situation. You're, you're probably not doing life together, at least not on like a weekly basis, right? You're not, you're not living like a family does with those people who are different from you. But the church... The church is a very different thing. We probably have people here who have like, a, I don't know, like a $100,000 difference a year in household income, if I had to guess. The church is just different. It's meant to be, where possible, a multi-ethnic community that spans all classes with people from all walks of life. People with different pasts, people with different families of origin, different struggles, different figures in their bank accounts. All equal and, and worthy of love and acceptance, brought together by a commitment to organize their life around the belief that Jesus is Lord and that he is worth following with everything they've got. The church is amazing in this way. There's nothing like it. It's why I highly recommend being part of a local church uh, in person. Is, we love you if you're watching online this morning, but in person as often as you can. You'll be sort of rubbing shoulders with people who aren't just like you. And that's good for you. It's good for your own formation. This was true of Jesus' first followers. All the way back to the 12, they had both zealots who hated those who were treasonous and even could be known for violence. And then we had tax collectors who were considered to be guilty of treason towards God's people as they worked for the occupying Roman government. They worked with their oppressor. This is the heritage of the church. This is our history. And so I've just painted a, a beautiful picture, an idyllic picture. But, but the church isn't some utopian society where everything is perfect and no one is ever left out, no one is ever mistreated, no one is ever overlooked. If you've been part of any church, and especially if you've been part of multiple churches, you've seen people get hurt. You've seen people mistreated. Churches aren't perfect because Christians aren't perfect. Please hear that and adjust your expectations accordingly. You're not perfect. You can start there. And, 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 and when, you, when you do start there, when you do realize that, then you can expect that the person next to you isn't perfect either. You've hurt people, and you'll be hurt by people. I'm a pastor. I'm surely not perfect. I repeat, I am not perfect. I will let you down. The person next to you will let you down. Look to Jesus, the only perfect one, not the church. And it's in tempering our expectations of other people to reality that we can find a joyful life among the church, which is the most unique, diverse community and also the greatest force of good the world has ever seen, despite all of its warts and all of its flaws. We shouldn't idealize the church, and even the early church, the first century churches, if they had all their stuff together, and we've just like wandered off in 2,000 years since then, when clearly in the first century, they have this issue of not treating one another well. If it were not so, we wouldn't need this warning in today's passage. 
the warning against favoritism. My dear brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Favoritism towards whom, you might ask. And so he tells us, for if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in. So we can see we're talking about a disparity in personal wealth. Notice he doesn't say rich. He describes a rich person without calling them rich. He describes their appearance, not their net worth. One commentator translates this verse uh, as if a person gold-ringed in shiny clothing comes into your assembly. That's a picture, gold-ringed in shiny clothing. The phrase he translates as gold-ringed can literally mean having golden fingers. Someone with gold rings would be displaying not only their wealth, but their status. Shining clothing means not just nice clothes in good shape, but showy clothing. They would be noticed. They would be intentionally bringing attention to themselves. You could probably safely relate this to things other than clothing, other signs of both wealth and status. If a person shows up at church in a Mercedes and another takes the bus... If a person shows up well-dressed and another in rags, don't even make a distinction between the two. How might you make a distinction between the two? How can you know if you've made a distinction improperly? Verse 3, if you look with favor on the one wearing fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor one, stand over there or sit on the floor by my footstool. If you look with favor on the one who's well-dressed, the one who's well-to-do, if, if you look with favor on the one who's buttoned up, it's funny that they mention clothing too. We might say we don't look at people differently for, for what they make, but do we look at people differently depending on how they present themselves? There are places where, because I'm wearing a hat this morning, some people would have some feelings about that, even so far to tell me that I'm a little bit less than. You might think that I'm being extreme in saying that this morning, but while working at another church, I might have shared this before, I, I was on the hook for occasionally recording videos, these like five-minute Bible lesson videos that would be uploaded to Facebook, which I hated doing. And, uh, and I, it's just the camera on you, no one else in the room is very, very strange. Um, and so I would do that, and I would just be dressed, you know, normally. And I had someone who didn't even attend that church that I was working for troll the videos, asking me to stop disrespecting the Word of God. And by that, they meant the Bible, not Jesus, as if the Bible could be offended by something. Um, and to remove my hat when reading the Scriptures. So we do have a cultural precedent that's hopefully fading that's based on how people dress told the story before about the church that my mom attended in the 60s and 70s that had a, a wonderful pastor. I'm told I was not there in the 60s and 70s. Um, had a wonderful pastor, but he brought in hippies. And because of how they dressed, he came under scrutiny for it. You might think we don't discriminate here based on, on what's in one another's bank account, but no one really sticks out here on a weekly basis. What if we had some homeless folks among us? What if you could tell someone had very little by how they were dressed, by what they were wearing? What if someone did stick out a little more? And what if some people stuck out more because they did have so much? What if we had people who flaunted their wealth more? What if the difference between the highest income person and the lowest income person in this congregation was more visually evident? Would we still treat one another as equal? 
James says when people come in where their, where their wealth is worn on their sleeve, do you treat them different? That's the question he's asking. Do you give those people a seat of honor? And in doing so, do you say that to the poor person, to the one who's less well-dressed, to the person who obviously comes through the door with a need? Are you saying to that person, go stand over there or, or go sit on the floor? Rich person, you get comfortable. Poor person, you get whatever's left. Rich person, take a load off even though you probably have the luxury of doing that all the time, whenever you want. Poor person, probably exhausted and weak, it's standing room only for you. Do you do that? Because if you do, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you have done this, don't you see, you become a judge with evil thoughts. You become a judge that doesn't see the full picture of a person. And in doing so, you become an unrighteous judge. First Samuel sixteen seven b tells us this. God does not view things the way people do. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And if that's how the God that we worship this morning together, if that's how he sees people, wouldn't we do well to become like him in that? Not by the things they wear, not by what they drive, not by how attractive they are, not by any of that, but by their hearts. If you do this thing that James is speaking against, you don't heed his warning from chapter one, you're, you're not slow to speak then. You're quick to speak. Someone walks in, you don't know them, you don't know their character, but you know how they appear, and instantly you give them the best place. You give them the place of honor. Back then, it would have been a seat up front close to the speaker. Here at the table, that's like the seat of shame where no one wants to sit except for my mom. So here, if that person walked in, you would say, let me usher you to the back, right, where, where you're the furthest away from the speaker. We don't want to be anywhere near that guy. We're kind of backwards here. You say, oh, wow, look at that outfit. Is that designer here? Make yourself comfortable in the back. Poor person, forget the floor. You're being demoted to the front row. You can sit by Joey's mom. <laughs> That's how this verse would be contextualized for our congregation, right? You've got to bridge the gap from the first century to 2024. But this isn't how Christians should live. Not the sitting in the back row part, you do whatever you want. But I wish there was a verse for that that told you to move forward. These are evil thoughts. This is an evil impulse. James continues, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't, Jesus, didn't, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? He's essentially like, aren't you aware of the Sermon on the Mount? Don't you know about the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor, Luke 6.20. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. And then later, same chapter, verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. It's not that poor people are saved based on their poverty or that rich people are condemned based on their wealth. It's, it's more complicated than that. Rich or poor, either way, they're subject to the wrath of God without the grace that comes through putting your trust in Jesus. Both those who trust in their wealth and those who think that wealth is all that they're lacking are lost. But James says, how often is it that those who are financially poor have the riches of faith 
And how hard, but not impossible, is it for the rich to trust Jesus? And yet you favor the rich over the poor? How backwards is that? He furthers his point. Yet you, drag, yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? He's telling him the rich are regularly wronging you. It's rich people that are, are usually, not always, but usually oftentimes wronging you. Yet you suck up to them. Yet you try to get on their good side. You hope that a little of their wealth will find its way to you. So you dishonor your brothers and your sisters who have less. Why are you so obsessed with the ones who generally have mistreated you, little church? Again, not all of them. There are wealthy Christians in the first century too. James is saying, this just doesn't make sense. It's, it's neither right nor is it logical, and you have to stop it. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. It looks as if he's describing the Torah here, the first five books of the Old Testament. Saying, if you love your neighbor as yourself, pat yourself on the back. That is wonderful. However, if you show favoritism, judging people by how they appear rather than by their heart, you're not actually loving your neighbor as yourself since you surely would not want to be treated that way. You'd want, to be, you'd want to be judged by what's inside of you. And so then you become convicted by the law as a sinner. You are guilty. So even if you follow the entire law to a T, except for one thing, you're still a lawbreaker. And you don't follow the entire Torah to a T, by the way. You don't follow the Ten Commandments perfectly. You probably haven't gone an entire day doing so where you're, guilt, where you're not guilty of breaking at least one of them. And if you keep all of the law but one point, you're a lawbreaker. If you sin in one way, you're a sinner, no matter how many ways you don't sin. And what that makes us, by the way, is equal. It makes us equal. We are equal. Regardless of how you dress, regardless of what you have, regardless of all the ways you don't sin, you still sin. And if you sin, you're a sinner. And if you're, if you're a sinner and I'm a sinner, it doesn't matter that you make six figures a year and then I make five. Deep down, we're both just sinners in need of saving. And God delights in saving us regardless of our status or our wealth. And when we come to put our trust in Jesus, we are no longer saved by adherence to the law, which is good because we can never perfectly keep that up. Instead, we are saved by Christ's adherence to the law. We're no longer saved by our works, which, which aren't completely good. And, and so they don't save us, but in fact, they're the reason we need saving. What we do is the reason we need saving. So instead, we're saved by Christ's finished work on the cross. We are free because of Christ's sacrificial work on the cross. And so in light of this, James says, speak and act as those who are judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You're going to be judged by the law of freedom, Christians. What on earth does that mean? Craig Blomberg, New Testament scholar, puts it this way. 
James returns to the law of liberty, first introduced in 125, as a positive contrast to the law of verses 10 and 11, which served only to condemn. Thus, this passage suddenly sounds remarkably Pauline. If one attempts to live according to the Torah, one is doomed to failure because one can never keep all of it. Rather, one ought to live according to the new law or covenant that Christ creates by fulfilling and supplementing Torah and according to the freedom it brings. But lest we think this is a license to sin, Douglas Moo explains that God's gracious acceptance of us does not end our obligation to obey him. It sets it on a new footing. For the will of God now confronts us as a law of liberty, an obligation we discharge with joy because we stand both forgiven and empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, this law of freedom, it doesn't just free us to do whatever we want. That's not why it's freedom. It's freedom because we can rest from striving because Christ has fulfilled the Torah and we are now free. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. We do not need to fulfill the law to save ourselves. It doesn't mean, however, that we don't give every effort to live the way of Jesus for our whole lives. Rather, we rest from thinking that, it's, that that's the thing that will save us. That's where freedom comes in. Live well, follow Jesus with your whole being, and in doing that, know that none of it saves you because Christ has already done everything necessary for your salvation. You, in a sense, were in a place of spiritual poverty, regardless of your material wealth. You owed a debt you couldn't pay. You were destitute. And Christ, who had all the riches of heaven, came down and paid your debt with his life. Christians will be judged based on this and will be found forgiven. No charges, no condemnation, just mercy. Now, that's how you will be judged if you're in Christ. So then, how must you judge? You must speak and act like people for whom that is true. You've received mercy mercifully treat people well who from an earthly lens deserve no special treatment. For judgment is without mercy for the one who has not shown mercy. It says our Lord taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You might shudder at this thought for a moment. Does the forgiveness that I extend or does the forgiveness that I receive depend on the forgiveness that I extend? 100% no. That's not not the relationship between your forgiveness and the forgiveness you receive. You cannot nullify the forgiveness God extends to you in Christ by your own unforgiveness. However, what James says here and what I think Jesus means in the Lord's Prayer is this. If you cannot forgive another person, perhaps you are yet to be forgiven. Perhaps you you haven't experienced forgiveness yourself. If you don't extend mercy, perhaps you haven't yet received mercy. It's not that if you don't extend mercy, God's going to say, forget it. I'm not extending mercy to you. If you can't yet extend mercy, perhaps you haven't received it. If you aren't merciful because you haven't received the mercy of God, you can't expect mercy to triumph over judgment for you. However, if you have received mercy, it should be the case that you realize what an enormous debt you owed and the measure that Christ went to pay it. And so then, holding all of that in your heart, understanding all of that, how then can you hold all these lesser things against your fellow sinners? 
if that's you, you can eagerly expect one day when standing before God, when all is laid bare, all of your sin is apparent, to hear God say, because of what Christ did, well done, good and faithful servant. You are my forgiven child. Welcome home. You can expect mercy to triumph over judgment for you on that day. And if you don't know Christ, if you haven't yet put your trust in him, you can only expect judgment until you do. God extends mercy by sending his son to die for the sins of his people. Until you, trust, until you trust Jesus, you haven't received mercy. Until you receive Christ, there's no mercy, there's only judgment. But this passage was written to a church. It was written to people who would claim that they are under the, that they are under the law of freedom and that they have received mercy. And it's instructive for how they should live. And so if that's you, if that's how you would describe yourself, then it's instructive for you too. So I'd ask this morning, how have you become a judge with impure thoughts? by showing favoritism. We aren't to discriminate. They were discriminating based on wealth and appearances of wealth, and I don't want to strip this passage of its teeth by saying that it's not about that, because it is. So I'd start by asking, do you do that? Because we're a small church, I'm going to guess you don't do that here because there isn't a noticeable, visible wealth disparity even if there is an actual one between the higher end and the lower end of the, the financial spectrum among us. That's just not where we're at right now as a church. If it were, I'd be maybe landing the plane here a little differently. But imagine if someone did walk in who was clearly of way more means or clearly of way less means than the average table goer. How would you treat them? How would you treat them? I think you know in your heart the answer to that. How would you treat them? Would you be quicker to befriend them than you if they were, would you be quicker to befriend them than you would if they were of less means? Or if they were someone of less means, do they walk in and you think someone else will, someone else will greet that person. I'm just not going to bother this morning. How is it that your own heart is prone to discriminate? And while for James it's about class and wealth and status specifically, it's not out of bounds to ask the question, is, is there some other type of person that you're prone to discriminate against? Whether because of what they wear, or where they're from, or God forbid, the color of their skin. Because you, you can tell they're Christians already, or because you can tell that maybe they've never been to church before and they don't know quite how to act, and so maybe you discriminate because of that. Who are you prone to discriminate against? Michelle, you can come up. God doesn't discriminate. Spoiler alert. We're all sinners. Perhaps, perhaps we're all the kind of people that you would, you would think a holy God would discriminate against. God hates sin. And so you might expect that he discriminates against sinners. And yet, shockingly, he loves to forgive sinners. He delights in forgiving sin. And we remember how God forgives sinners like you and I this morning as we remember that Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, gave thanks and then took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and again giving thanks, he said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. 
Jesus died for people who hated him. He died to save people who would turn their backs on him. If he didn't discriminate against us, what right do we have to discriminate against or look down on any of our neighbors? Neighbors who we're completely equal to. So as we prepare to take communion and as you're sitting here remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus, I just want you to ask yourself, I want you to ask the Lord, is there anyone who I hate or discriminate against in my heart? Anybody who I think less of in my heart? Anyone who I see myself as better than in my heart? Anyone that I'm treating that way? Because to do so hinders the growth of this little church And truthfully, it hinders the growth of God's kingdom. And it shows a place in your heart that Christ hasn't quite won over to his perspective on people yet. So be honest with yourself. Ask God to point it out to you. And I would add, ask God who it is in your life that you should be extending mercy to, that you haven't extended mercy to. Who do you need to forgive that you haven't forgiven? What relationship in your life do you need to let the weight of Christ's forgiveness bring forgiveness to bear on in your own life? And then when you're ready, we take communion here every week, uh, kind of at our own pace. We sit and we just spend time with the Lord while Michelle plays music up here. And then when you're ready, you can stand and you can walk over. We have communion available in the back um, to my left. And we just take communion by taking the bread and dipping in the cup and remembering what Jesus has done for us. And every week at this time, I tell you we have gluten-free communion in the back to my right. But I found out this week that it's not gluten-free. So I figured I should mention that in case you're sitting here this morning and you have uh, celiacs or something. So uh, there might be an opportunity for you to extend mercy to to me this morning. Um, I'm going to pray, and then you're free to take communion as you're ready. Father, I thank you for the people that you've gathered here this morning for the mercy you've shown us. Um, God, we just get so forgetful in our hearts as, as we've been the recipients of so much mercy and sometimes we show so little. Would you give us hearts that see everyone as equal, children of God, beloved by him, sinners needing grace. If there's any sort of prejudice or racism in this room this morning, would you miraculously just wipe that clean? If there are people in this room holding unforgiveness in their heart, people who can't extend mercy, would you gently just nudge them this morning and remind them what great debt they owed? And yet you sent your son, God, you sent your son to die that they might be forgiven. And if that's true, how could we hold an offense of anyone? How could we hold on to anything like that? I pray that your spirit would have his way in this room this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week.
Go in peace.